Hey, this is Craig Finn. My new record, Legacy of Rentals, is about memory. How we remember friends that are gone, places that have changed, major events that are part of our past. Songs are memorials, incantations, affirmations, legends, and prayers. Like all stories, they're subject to the imperfection and limitations of memory, the distortion that happens to our own histories when stretched by time and distance. These small adjustments become part of the stories themselves. I like talking about this kind of thing, so I created That's How I Remember It. It's a podcast that examines the connection between memory and creativity. Each episode features a discussion between myself and one creator about the role that memory plays in their art. These conversations will reveal the different way each creator synthesizes their remembered life experience to tell stories about themselves and the world we live in. My guest today is Tom Parada. Tom is an incredible author of at least eight novels and two story collections. Many of his books have been made into film and TV, including Little Children, Election, Mrs. Fletcher, and The Leftovers. And he's often written the screenplays for these projects. His most recent novel is Tracy Flick Can't Win, and it's a follow-up to Election. It revisits the character Tracy Flick about 25 years on. I first met Tom in 2008 when he was writing a story for the Guardian newspaper about the Hold Steady, and he visited the studio while we were recording Stay Positive. He brought me some of his books then, and I've devoured everything he's published since. I'm very grateful to have Tom Parada, and that's how I remember it. It's a fascinating talk. The history's rewritten When the memories get meddled with The way that I remember it Thanks for joining us, Tom. I am going to start how I start all these. And the question is, do you consider yourself to have a good memory? I would have to say no. Um, and, and I think that it's actually uh, been caused by my writing. I think that I've, I've started for, or I not started, but for a long time, I felt like memory for me is all tied up with fiction. I don't do anything to preserve my memories. I, I really, I, my mind is like one of these uh, security cameras at a convenience store. You know, it, it, it tapes for like 48 hours and then it clears for the next 48. And, and whatever remains, you know, remains and whatever flows on by, flows on, on by. You know, you know, obviously like important things stick with me and random things stick with me, but I don't attempt to really improve my memory or, or do things to, to hold on to it. And as a result, I often feel like, you know, I especially have a terrible sense of like when something happened in the past. Was that two years ago? Was it five years ago? It, it like the chronology doesn't seem that important to me. A lot of the details don't actually seem important to me. Like the feeling seems important to me. So, you know, I forget a lot. And, and I, I know this because my brother is a year older than me and lived through a lot of the same stuff as me. And he has a much more specific and clear memory. So I'll say, oh, remember when this happened? And he'll say, no, no, this other thing, actually, it actually happened like this. And so and so was there. And it was, you know, uh, it was the fourth game of the Little League uh, Championship Series. And, uh, you know, you played second base that day. And and every time he says it, I go, oh, yeah, that must be right. <laughs> you know, but, but it's like, completely gone for me, like all that stuff. But I remember what it felt like to play in the Little League Championship, you know? There's an emotional memory, I guess it sounds like, maybe of not specific. I started this podcast with the theory going in that all writers would say they have a great memory and they're telling the story correctly, kind of. But you're the first one who said absolutely um, no, which is interesting. Like, how does that affect the stories? Do you think that affects the way you write in any way? Yeah, yeah, and, and I even... You know, I remember when I first talked to you, I was interviewing you for uh, an article in The Guardian, and you talked a lot about your notebooks and how important they were for your writing, right? Like, absolutely, like, crucial thing for you to revisit your your notebooks and find, I think, in, inspiration there. And I and I remember thinking, like, ah, oh, I should do that, you know? And there was only one time in my life, like, when I was in, like, maybe seventh, eighth grade, when I was going through puberty, I kept a journal. And I... I tried to read it a few years ago and I couldn't. It was too like painful for me to to go back and and experience it. So I've just made peace with like that's not my process. And so, I, but what my process is, I think, is 
I often then find myself stuck for details when I'm writing, you know, and and that's like a lot of the work is letting my unconscious or forcing my unconscious to spit up a detail. I, it's almost like the the lack of a a real memory forces me to kind of compensate with a, a fictional substitute. And, and that to me is like a big part of the writing process. Like I have a story I want to tell, a feeling that I want to get at, but I, I don't have the details on the tip of my mind. It's like, it's just deep in there. And I have to, you know, get into a kind of state of whatever that flow is, whatever that concentration is that my memory will produce produce those details. What is, what does that look like in the in the real time? I mean, are you like, you know, if you need the name of a car, are you staring at the screen saying like I need a car name or do you do you go buy it and come back to it and fill it in, etc.? Uh yeah, I'll I'll go buy and and fill it in later. And, and yeah, obviously the internet has changed all this. Now this is my like uh Google is is my substitute memory and and it's a little embarrassing. But I did make mistakes early in my career because I didn't have it. Like, I, I uh, wrote a story in Bad Haircut where these kids spill out of, somebody jumps out of the backseat of a Monte Carlo and, and somebody wrote to me and said, you know, Monte Carlo's only had uh, one door. There was no, uh, there was no, I mean, there's a backseat, but there wasn't a back door. There was just that, I said, the back door of a Monte Carlo. And it was just like, I, my friend had a Monte Carlo, but I just couldn't remember that it, you know, was a, what do you call that? A coupe, <laughs> not a sedan, you know? I think I have one of those on Separation Sunday. I think I say Sonoma when I'm saying about a desert. And I, I think I meant Sonora. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, it's, it's just, it, it, it sang better. And I never questioned it till someone pointed it out. But those are, those are the charming things I guess we have less of because I would have Googled it. Now, when you talk about notebooks, almost everything I have is on iPhone notes apps now because I'm so often with my phone and not, and that there's some charm lost. I have this huge box of notebooks, but I haven't added it to it in years, you know? How about being becoming a writer? Do you have early memories of, of stories, books, et cetera, things that, that turned you on or want, you know, led you to this path? Yeah, you know, so my mother was a reader. My father had like books about World War II, um, but I don't think I ever saw him read a novel. Um, and so it wasn't like I grew up in, in a house full of books the way like my kids grew up or, and a lot of people with um, highly educated parents grow up. And so it's really kind of a random mix of like what was in this little library we had in town, um, what we got from like that scholastic book club. So it was, it was all like I remember like Encyclopedia Brown being like a, a huge thing. We had a lot of Hardy Boys, um, so that was available. So I was reading kind of what every other boy was reading. I read a lot of strange but true uh, sports stories, which still have like like really stuck with me and which I've um, given shout outs to in various uh, uh, fiction that I've written. Um, and then, the, but the real thing was, uh, well, you know, somebody just wrote a piece in the New Yorker about Go Ask Alice. So I had like a friend who had an older brother and he, you know, I would like just grab books that were laying around there. I was pretty voracious. It just was a matter of like what books filtered down to a kid in a, you know, like a blue collar town in New Jersey in the 70s. So I remember him because my friend's brother was kind of a, a hip, high school age hippie. So I read Go Ask Alice and like the Carlos Castaneda, you know, the Don Juan books. But then one one day I was in the local pharmacy of all places and they had a mass market paperback rack and The Hobbit was on it. I had never heard of The Hobbit, but I'm like, what is this thing? And then for a couple of years, I became like the local Lord of the Rings, uh, you know, PR flack. I always felt like I felt like I had discovered it because I literally did not know anybody else who, who knew it. I just found it on this rack and... Yeah, it became this like huge, like almost religious experience for me. And then, you know, then it was uh, the kind of books you read in AP classes in high school. You know, um, uh, we had this book called Nine Short Modern Novels, and it was uh, 
like Kafka's The Metamorphosis and uh, Heart of Darkness, just these like classic works. And I was just such a hungry teenager, man. This, I remember that, The Stranger by Camus, you know, just these, just a real, it was like a college class in a, in a book, but it was like, it was just one mind blowing thing after another. Amazing. Yeah, I, I remember, I just recently kind of remembered this thing that happened to me where I, when I was young, we were at a beach house and they had a copy of The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. And I thought, that guy's got my same last name. So I pulled it off the shelf and I read it. And my, my dad and my grandfather both were playing this. I, it's not a trick, but like encouraged me, but they just started reading it when I went to bed. And, and they'd say, what page are you on? I'd say, I'm on page 35. And he'd say, oh, I just got to page 34. So I was just always a little ahead of him. But then we'd talk about it. And I think, like, literally, when I look back, that might have been the first book that I just loved, right? And it's funny. And it's still funny. You know, as an adult, it's funny, I'm sure, in a different way. But but I, I look back, it's that being very uh, influential, inspirational, et cetera. But I, I know you're a music fan. Is there How about early early music stuff that you were into? Do you, do you have memories of the first music that kind of turned you on? Well, so it was weird because, you know, so my parents were born in the early 1930s and and they just missed rock and roll, you know? And, and so we listened in the car. My father just listened to this horrible music like it's so, so like I I would know Beatles songs by like the the hundred and one strings version of Yesterday or something like this, and so we were kind of like siloed off from this world of popular music. And I remember maybe being around you know nine or ten. I was at a birthday party and all these kids were just going crazy because Let It Be had just come out, and I just felt so uh, like cut off from like, what is this Let It Be? Why is everybody talking about it? I mean, I knew who the Beatles were, but I don't think I understood their significance. And then right around that time, my we, my brother and I got transistor radios and we would listen to WABC. And, and so all the songs that were out in that moment, this is like the very early 70s. And like, I hear them now and, and they just are part of my, you know, my musical DNA. It's like, uh, you know, Al Green, Let's Stay Together, and uh, Cher, you know, Gypsies, Tramps and Thieves, and, uh, you know, just just like that moment of, of popular music on, on the radio was my entrance. And then it was, then and after that, it was just like, I just went all, all in. And I had an older cousin who played in bands and was always introducing me to, to stuff. And I had this friend who I was telling you about who had the older brother, and we just, you know, we had that experience that was not at all a part of my son's growing up. You know, he didn't sit down and listen to albums, you know, and study the covers. And, and I mean, that was like, you know, huge events. Like for me, like, like coming across uh, all my brothers eat a peach, say, um, you know, if I hear like in memory of Elizabeth Reed right now, and there's a song, right. That's memory in memory of somebody. And, and, you know, it just feels like there's all this past kind of saturating that that song, you know, for me. My parents had like some records, but not tons. Like they had kind of soft rock stuff, Paul Simon, Linda Ronstadt. They never had any Beatles records. I know what you're saying. I knew all these Beatles songs, but I didn't know there were Beatles songs. And you're like, oh, yesterday, that's a Beatles song. Hey, Jude's a Beatles song. I didn't, I didn't know, you know, um, I know all these different versions. And so there was a catching up on that, which is kind of, kind of, a, I mean, it, it does underscore the, 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 the hugeness of the Beatles. But, I, you know, are there eras like now when you, are, are there eras that you're obsessed with? I'm obsessed with anything I can watch from like the Nixon era or read or whatever, because I was born in 71 and that's when I was forming memories. Are there, are there, are there, like when you go to watch a movie or read a book, are there eras that you're like especially interested in or are they all the same? Oh no, no. I mean, I mean, I think lately that's been almost like the subject of my work is just, you know, how much change I've, I've lived through and, and, how like how much the self you know feels transformed by the you know cultural context and the way that context changed. So the Nixon era is really important to me. But actually, um, I think the moment that I keep returning to now is just 
I went to college in 1979 and I graduated in 1983. And when I got to college in 79, I remember the day I showed up for a visit, they were having this like outdoor music festival and everybody took acid. It was like a legendary thing. Like you just saw people with, it was like a dead show or something. And this was a, yeah, yeah, you know, and people had their faces painted and they had their dogs tie dyed. And it was just like, it was still the sixties. And by the time I graduated in 1983, these kids were coming in as freshmen and they had like different haircuts and they had like different, they had nice clothes and button down shirts. And like the sixties were over. I mean, the seventies were over and it was like the Reagan era. And I remember like, like feeling this sense of real like loss and, and betrayal. And, and, you know, there was a kind of a hippie attitude that I, you know, really held on to for a few years after that. But I started to feel like a sucker, like everybody was talking about money and getting ahead. And, and I just feel like, you know, I had to like almost jettison this sense of what the world could be, you know? And my most recent book is, you know, picking up the character of Tracy Flick, who's just this real striver from that world, you know? And, and, and I think that I was just so aware of like, oh shit, but like, there was a bait and switch. I was sold this sort of hippie utopia. And then I was given this like Darwinian competitive uh, world where you just had to get your own and, and everybody else could go fuck themselves. And, and like that moment, like how that happened and where it came from was just uh, like, it's something I'm, I still remember it just, it spun my head. And I, I, you know, I remember I had a friend who I was painting houses with and he started telling me about like, how he'd started investing his money and, and like the stock market was booming and he had all, and I just was like, what? I got to know about this stuff. Like, this is not the world I want to live in, but you know, slowly you, you acclimate yourself to it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and on, on the new book, Tra- Tracy Fleck can't win. Uh, it's a sequel to election, obviously, and the characters have grown older. When we talk about memory, was there a sense of getting back to the mindset of Tracy Flick? Is, I mean, is, is that something, did you have to sit down and, and kind of reacquaint yourself? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I was just thinking about this, you know, this whole question of, of memory and, and like, you know, music is such an immediate and visceral thing. And you can listen to a song over and over again, and you might find different things in it, but it's there to be experienced, but you read a book and that's the experience. And then there's the memory of the book. And I would even say you write a book and that's the experience, you know, making those sentences. And then you remember what you wrote. And that's a much simpler thing. Like memory just always boils things down in a reductive way. Cause that's the only way we can carry it around. And, and so I actually had to go back and like reread election, you know, this book that I had written almost, almost 30 years ago. It took a while to get published. It came out in, I think, uh, 97 or 98, but I wrote it in like 93. So almost 30 years ago. And, and it's a, you know, it's quite a thing to re-experience your, your own self in, in that way. And, and, but also to re-experience my character because Tracy Flick is a first person narrator. So she is telling you who she is. And so that was basically the, Raw, raw material that I had to work with when I, I wrote the sequel, and I had to kind of think about like, well, how would Tracy remember her high school self? You know, now that she's in her forties, and that seems far away, and it made me think about how you know I remember my high school self and how I simplified my whole world, my whole life, all these people that I knew and and cared about into like a paragraph. Like, well, when I was in high school, I arrived thinking that I was going to be a football player. My brother was a, a great football player. I was I was pretty good. It, it was all that I wanted. I was going to work really hard at it. I'm not a big person. And eventually, by sophomore year, it was clear to me I wasn't going to play football. Um, I had started playing the guitar. I had started reading these books that I was telling you about. So I basically went from being a jock to being half a uh, stoner, half like artist. And, and, and at the same time, a very good student. So I had this, you know, when I saw Dazed and Confused, I felt like I was like re-encountering my, my world, you know, and, and even that issue of like signing the permission slip for football. And, and you know, it, it, it felt like, oh, my, I could remember my life because I experienced this, this movie. I felt like nobody else had really 
gotten that world into a into a work of uh, into a work of fiction. And, but anyway, it was like it was a whole world. Four years, really important years, like to me, the defining years of my life. But I tell the story in a very simplified way, and and Tracy Flick does that too. There's there's a whole novel election where a thing happens to her, and in the sequel, she just kind of summarizes it in a paragraph. But she also says like that thing that happened to me then when this teacher tried to steal the election, it did something to me. It like it jolted my confidence, and it kind of made it so that nothing that ever happened to me afterward ever kind of felt as good as it was supposed to. Like, because it, it was really about like a traumatic thing that, that she's not necessarily identifying as trauma, but because the reader's in a kind of a privileged position to, to kind of know maybe the people who know election are in a privileged position of, of knowing exactly how traumatic this was for her. But I, I do think that's that's how, how we do it, right? We live through these rich moments in our lives and we remember them as a small part of this larger story. Like, I'm really interested in that. Like, what are the stories we tell about ourselves and how does memory factor into that? And memory can be very selective and, and memory can also like miss the point. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. I mean, that's what I think is that part of this is the book is Tracy, what story she tells herself about her own life, which is something I'm really interested in this podcast and, you know, how we sometimes even get something wrong, you know, and or slightly wrong and then can build a build a house on a foundation that's a little crooked. And, you know, uh, but she seems to have a story, a narrative that pushes her forward. What was the genesis to to revisit? Did her story haunt you in some way? Did you just think it's time to go back as a a commercial decision and you know if if it was i was just recently read that the uh the beatles revolver was uh started to put um product on the shelf for christmas so i will never uh, look down on a uh, if it was a commercial decision <laughs> i know i know and the stones were told like they have to have two albums a year right in those in those early years and and they would lock themselves in a room to write songs and some great songs came out of it. So I, I, I agree with you. And, and one of the interesting things to say about working in TV was that you just have to produce script after script, you know, and there's something about that pace that, you know, can lead you to, to, to cool places. But I, I wouldn't necessarily say it was a, you know, I would say <laughs> not, it wasn't so much a commercial decision for me to revisit Tracy. It was really this sense that, uh, you know, around... 2015. Well, well, let me just say the, the whole arc was, I wrote the book. It was, uh, did not make a big splash in the world, but the book was made into a movie that did make a big splash in the world. It made Reese Witherspoon a star because she gave such a great performance. And it created this sort of archetype that has stuck in the culture for a while. Like Tracy Flick is this very ambitious, but slightly abrasive woman who wants political power. And, and it was like a stereotype that was applied to Hillary Clinton and a lot of other women politicians. And Tracy was seen as a kind of villain early on. And then recently some feminist critics started to say, wait a second, Tracy Flick is not the villain. She's a high school kid who's, you know, trying to get elected president. And, you know, she's been victimized by a teacher who had a, a sexual affair with her and then victimized by this other teacher who, you know, tries to steal an election from her. Why is she the villain? And so she was in the air, like in a way, none of my other characters really have been as a kind of um, cultural archetype. And then the, the Me Too movement happened. And I think like a lot of men, you know, um, I had to look back on my life and think like, okay, you know, was I a, a good person? You know, I like to think of myself as a good, a good person, you know, and, and I also had to think about it as a writer. Like I wrote this story about a girl who had an affair with a teacher when she was 15 years old. And in, in the book election, Tracy is just very much like, I'm not a victim. This thing happened. It happened because I wanted it to happen and it ended because I wanted it to end. And it only went wrong because the teacher was such a baby, you know, and, and, and I had to think about like, why did I write, write it like that? You know, and, and I, you know, I looked at the, how I wrote it in, in election and I didn't, I wasn't as horrified as I thought because I felt like Tracy 
is telling herself a story even then. She's a, a girl who doesn't have a lot of advantages. She has a single mom. You know, they live in a rented house. She needs a scholarship to go to college. She's like trying to succeed in every way. And this thing happens to her. And she comes up with a narrative that just is about her own agency and power. You know, it's like she doesn't want to be seen as a victim. She doesn't want to feel like a victim. She wants to feel like somebody who can conquer the world. And so she tells a story that doesn't interfere with that. And Tracy Flick Can't Win happens when she's in her 40s now. She hasn't made, she hasn't conquered the world the way she expected. She's done okay. She's an assistant principal in high school. But the Me Too movement is happening and, and people are, women are pointing out like all these abusive relationships that, uh, you know, where, where men were taking advantage of younger, vulnerable women. And, and Tracy's starting to see like, oh, maybe that story that I told about me being in charge was wrong. Like maybe I've misunderstood my power in the world and misunderstood you know, what exactly happened to me then and, and, and who I am now. And, and so, so she's grappling with cultural change over the same cultural change that I was grappling with, but, but you know, from her, her perspective as the character, I was grappling with it as a man who was writing a, a woman's story, which again was something that in 1992, it seemed artistically fraught, but not ideologically fraught, you know. Hey, I'm Craig Finn. Here on That's How I Remember It, we often talk about music, so I wanted to mention DistroKid and their new app for iPhone and Android. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. Over a million artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. With this app, you can sign up and pay for a new DistroKid account, or sign into an existing one. You can upload new releases. You can get notified when you've earned royalties, edit your account details, check your streaming stats, add lyrics and song credits, edit release metadata, and so much more. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. You know, it, I, one of the things I'm interested in is, is like how we kind of, you know, we make an album, make a book, whatever. It's kind of marking our, uh, as an artist, you're marking your your height against the, you know, proverbial closet door to, to say, here's where I am today, right? I read a lot on a Kindle, which is maybe not be popular, but I do. And when I, when I finished Tracy Flick, Can't Win, it, it took me to somehow to like the first first few pages of election. It said, sample this. So I started reading that again. And it, and it, it was interesting because it went back. And I, I think about how much your work deals with these culture wars. And right away on that, um, what I was reading from election referred to Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill, as well as um, a sexual assault in Glenridge, New Jersey, which I'm pretty sure was real. And the, these current events, did they, did they often start the process for you? You know, it, it didn't. Like, so when... My first few books were, were, I think, very much just auto, semi-autobiographical, like Bad Haircut was a collection of stories about growing up in, in the 70s in the town where, where I did grow up. And when I look back, it seems like very local, you know? And, and I think election was the first time where I felt like I was stretching out and trying to talk about a, a very local thing, like a high school election, but place it in the context of American democracy and wanting to treat it as a kind of a microcosm, you know, that these things aren't separate. Like, it's easy to think sometimes, well, there's my small world and there's this big world over here. And I think election was when I started to realize, no, like every small world is in some kind of dialogue with this big world over here. And that I slowly became like, my thing, I think, as, as a writer. But it was something that I just sort of discovered as as I went along. And partly it was because I used up a lot of my autobiographical material. And I felt like I was becoming like much more like, what do I do now? What do you do when you use up your autobiographical material? And I, and I started to think, well, I want to be one of those writers who writes like social novels. I want to engage with like the public conversation at, at any given moment. And, and Election was the book that kind of showed me how to do that, that like the way to do that was to 
kind of create a little microcosm that seemed in some way to have a you know relationship with this this bigger world out here I wondered about that because when a lot of your so much of your work takes place in small towns or more accurately probably suburbia and oftentimes in New Jersey where you grew up and I write a lot of songs I said a lot of my songs in the Twin Cities where I grew up and I think I feel some sort of sense of either comfort or control in that you know I can write a song about something I've never done like a drug deal gone bad that ends in a shootout but if I put it in the right in the parking lot of the right place, you know, the, of somewhere I've been to a hundred times, I feel more honest about that story or something that I, that I can, that I can tell that story. I, do you, do you, does that, does that ring true for you? Do you feel like a control by, by, by having those details familiar or s- somewhat? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think obviously you could go out and report those other, you know, discover those other details that might make it real. If you told the story in, uh, you know, Atlanta instead of Minneapolis. But um, I think there is something about like the play, growing up in a place and having that place like I- inside of you that is just, it's the only way I feel authentic as a writer. And it's led, you know, it's led a little bit to me feeling like, hey, why can't I <laughs> branch out a little bit? Why, why another story about like a high school teacher or, a, um, you know, a youth sports coach? Like I, I kind of, keep revisiting the same place. But I, I do feel like that's where my imagination lives. And and I can't force it s- somewhere else. And I and I, I have like definitely, you know, there, there are two kinds of writers. You know, there are, Hemingway goes off to Spain or he goes off to, you know, the Florida Keys. He doesn't really have a place that's a Hemingway place. It's, uh, it's Africa. It's wherever he wanted to travel. But, you know, Philip Roth just kept going back to Newark and to his family there, you know, there was something there that was like this treasure trove for him. And, and John Cheever kept writing about, you know, people taking that train from the city back home to Connecticut and Flannery O'Connor wrote about a kind of backwoods, uh, you know, deep South. And, you know, Faulkner obviously had his own place and Gabriel Garcia Marquez, you know, I, I do think it's just the truth is like some of us, have an imaginary territory that that belongs to us and it's it's tied to who we were when we grew up it almost doesn't matter who you become when you're older like i I always uh remember you know when bruce springsteen started to refer to the fact that he was now a rich man and he was still you know writing these blue collar songs but i felt like it's okay because you your identity really is like the who you were when you kind of came of age and created your your artistic self, you know, and and you know maybe it's hard to keep that going forever, but I, he kept it going for a good. Long I mean, that's time. A, I always think that's the the answer to the question when you know where are you from? It's like, well, I moved around a lot. Okay, well, where did you go through puberty? Because that's kind of where he, you fell apart and put yourself back together. Where where did that happen? Yeah, yeah, no, and I, I do think that putting yourself together, um, that act of like creating the self, you know, which is about using memory um, to tell a story about yourself. And, and we, we do that when we're pretty young, you know, and, and if you're, if you're lucky, you know, it, it can withstand all the, all the blows of adulthood. You know, you, you said earlier that high school is very, um, you know, formative. And I think it is for all of us. And a lot of your books have taken place in in both high school and college, but around, and I know you've taught, so I wondered if that's part of it. What I'm also interested in, and I'm very fascinated, have you been to your high school reunions? Yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was actually uh, something that, that I really thought about because when I went for my uh, 10th reunion, I wasn't, I don't think I was really a successful writer yet. Like I was teaching college I published a couple stories, but I didn't have a book. It might might have been my, uh, yeah, it must have been 10th. And and I went and I remember thinking like, oh, everybody likes me, (laughs) you know? Because I I did feel like like I had had this ability to kind of move in different social groups, you know, and like 
well, the football players still like me because I used to play football and then the artsy kids like me and I'm in the AP classes and I try to be nice to everybody. And I went in there feeling like pretty good about like my high school self. And it just, it just so happened like two people came up and just basically said like, I've been waiting to see you for like all this time just to tell you like what an asshole you were to me. Yeah, two, two different people and... One guy, one guy was like played uh, center and I was a quarterback in Pop Warner football. And I guess we had, he was like the second string center and he was much shorter than the regular one. And we used to just fumble the snaps all the time. And he would always say like, and you always just said it's Bobby's fault, you know? And, and it was just like, I fucking hated you for that. And, and he was like, you know, really drunk when he told me, but it was like, there was just this rage you know, that he'd been carrying around since seventh grade to me. And it was like, I was really shaken by it. And then um, there was this this girl who was like a good friend of mine. And we had this one night where we were out of dance and we like had like a brief makeup. And then I just realized, oh, we shouldn't, you know, and I did like the asshole teenage thing. Like I didn't say anything. I just pretended it had never happened, you know. And, and, and you know, she was still mad at me. <laughs> about that you know and it, it was just a funny night because I remember just feeling so innocent when I walked in and feeling like kind of guilty when when I walked out and realized like people don't forget things and like the way that I forgot these events they were you know they were just I didn't even remember the the Pop Warner stuff I remembered you know oh, I had this fun makeout session but we ultimately we didn't you know it didn't turn into anything, you know, <laughs> but, but, but it was like not her experience of it at all. And she, you know, these people, like things that were just tiny, like unmemorable events in my life were like things that people had been like brooding over for uh, a, a number of years and, and were waiting to just pull me aside and say, like, you were a jerk to me. So did you go back for 25 or any of that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I did. I went back to, to a couple of the other ones. And not, I think people had, like, whoever needed to say their piece to me had said their piece, you know. So then it was more like just watching people, you know, change over time and seeing, like, like what part of them remained kind of... Um, you know, constant and what, what changes. I, I remember a lot of people I grew up with became um, like contractors. They, there was a lot of, um, you know, building contractors who I grew up with. And I remember in 2003, they were flush and like there was like a real fun 20th uh, uh, or, or no, sorry, it was not, I'm, I'm getting the dates wrong. But but when, when they were flush, I was like maybe our 25th in 2004, they were, it was a fun reunion. And then the next one was like 2009 and the bottom had just fallen out of the economy. And a lot, you know, they were very specifically the real estate and construction world, you know, and, and that was like a dark one, you know. So that, that was, you know, I felt like the first night was a really a personal story for me. And then afterwards it was more like a, you know, just group portrait of the people that I grew up with. And I, you know, I left and I know you've left where you came from too. And that's like, that changes memory too. My, you know, I live in Massachusetts now, but a lot of people I grew up with still live around where we grew up. And I think their connection to their past is a lot more unbroken than mine. Like, I feel like I've like shed that self a little bit and become somebody else. Um, and so I think you are more capable of like, that may be why my memory's bad too. You were happy to shed some memories maybe. My reunions came up when I was on the road just because of what I do. So I haven't been to any of them, which I would go back to them. I, I, I actually really enjoyed where I actually went to high school, but I didn't go to it. Um, but the one thing I remember in 2014, the Hold Steady Open for the Replacements was the first replacement show back in the Twin Cities. And uh, I've played a thousand shows and I don't really get nervous. And that day I was so agitated and I realized it was because I'm pretty sure everyone I know is going to be in the audience, you know, all the, and it was my own version of that. And like a lot of things, once the guitar gets on and you hit the first chord, it's fine. But the, the whole day was like, you know, like, like really nervous. And I realized it was this own version of it. Oh, so, so were there, were there people there from your high school? 
Oh yeah, well, but but I didn't see him because I didn't go out there. But uh, but uh, you know, well, I, I definitely got some like you know social media. But absolutely, there were. I didn't think they were waiting for me to fail. But it was a big event in the Twin Cities. Obviously, it was the Replacements' first non-festival show and their hometown heroes, etc. And you know, um, I all of a sudden became very aware of it, and um, it, it affected me in this way that that surprised me. Like if the night before I wasn't thinking of it, and that day. I was, you know, a little shaky. Yeah, well, because it, it, it has to connect you back to the kid you were, right? So w- w- were you playing in bands in high school? Yeah, I was playing in bands. And, you know, um, I actually, um, so I switched. I went to like a big public school and it, for junior high and it went poorly. You know, I was nerdy, artistic, you know, it was a real sports oriented uh, school in Edina, Minnesota. And, and it was like, you know, uh, it was, it was full of, uh, there's some nice people that I'm still friends there, but there were some real lousy people there. And uh, I kept living there uh, in Edina, but I switched to a private school that was kinder and gentler, let's just say. And uh, that went really well. And right away I met friends who were into music. And I remember like, you know, one of the first things my f- new friends and I did was go to see the replacements at the beginning of ninth grade. And I'd met these friends and they liked the replacements too. So we went to the seventh street entry and we saw them. And uh, I mean, here's a memory. I remember that the tickets were $5, but we um, we went to the record store early because they were $4 in advance. And we wanted to save the money, uh, which is quaint now, but uh, <laughs> especially when you see what Springsteen tickets are going for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh, but uh, and it was great. Yeah, so all these things were connected to the, a lot of things were connected to the replacements. They were sort of connected to my, you know, that second thing. But I wonder, you know, that this this idea of in Tracy Flick that the legacy, um, like, and I'm I'm promoting a record called A Legacy of Rentals. I'm thinking about legacy. Yeah, they're yeah. going back. Is is that is there a warning here? Is there is like they're going back and trying to like capture something, you know, especially Kyle um, and Vito, really the the quarterback. They're going back and trying to capture something that. Is, is that dangerous to you? I mean, do you think that's, is there a warning inherent in this book about, about trying to capture that? I, you know, I think, I think it's a, you know, you were talking about the Nixon era and I was talking a little bit, bit about the Reagan era. I would say this, you know, nostalgia, I mean, nostalgia is a, a natural human thing. I mean, especially as we get older, like we're naturally like nostalgic for, our youth, um, but I think there's a kind of a toxic political nostalgia, you know, that that says the world was better than. Like I see it all the time. People talking about people I grew up with on social media talking about this, like that we grew up in like a Mayberry world, and I'm just like, you, you to to say something like that means you just have to. <laughs> completely forget everything that was dark about that time which was a which was a lot of stuff i mean you know the vietnam war and the you know people in our town had died you know it's like a lot of guys grew up you know in terrible fear that they were going to get drafted it was a racially segregated town you know there was just a lot of free-floating racism in in that world there was um you know uh there, there was just a, a lot of stuff. You know, people who were were gay. Um, I used to tell people, "Oh, there are no gay people in my <laughs> high school." Yeah. They, they, when you go to the reunions and there are a bunch of gay people, they were just terrified. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think this this willingness to look back at that world and say, like, "Oh, that's when things were good." Like that was not what the mid seventies felt like at the time. But people want to remember that now. And those are the people who are voting for Trump. You know, he, he talks the same way. Like back then, you know, we had a good thing. We had a good thing going. Well, it, it was a pretty dark time. And we lived right near New York. It was a, you know, it was a dark time in New York as well. And But there is this kind of willful political nostalgia that's, that's like happening on a big scale. But a couple of my characters in the book are also kind of, remembering their their past um in a really sanitized way you know kyle in particular is this uh, tech nerd who wants to go back to 
his hometown and give his kids the experience that he had. Of course, he's putting them in this gigantic house that makes a mockery of a lot of the homes around him, you know? And so he's this guy who is like, you know, living in this very, you know, causing this great inequality, but, you know, feels nostalgic for this world where everybody was the same and, and is trying to give it to his kids, but they're, you know, he can't. It's just, it's a contradiction in terms. Vito is this guy who was a jock and an asshole when, when he was a kid. And now he's in his 40s as a football player who's beginning to suspect that he, his brain got damaged from concussions. And, and, it, it, and he's struggling with uh, alcoholism as well. And, and he's actually maybe for the first time in his life because he feels vulnerable and like he's lost things that are important. Um, he's trying to learn how to become a decent person um, and trying uh, to apologize and make amends. And uh, and he, be, he became a really interesting character for me because I do think, you know, we can judge a guy like Vito. He was, he was an asshole and he hurt a lot of people. But I, I do believe in at least, a, you know, a path to redemption and, and that there's something really... Um, moving about people who um, can admit that they've caused damage and are trying to make it better. It's like the opposite of a figure like Donald Trump, who just, you know, is a wrecking ball and, and would never apologize no matter, you know, what he did. And he's just proud of the damage he does. There's a beauty to like, like being on the other side of, I've had people make amends with me and it's, it's, there's a beauty to it. And also, Oftentimes, I've found that it was something that was harder on them than it was on me. And, and, you know, if you can set people free from that pain, that's also a beautiful thing. And I thought I love that part of the story. I had like one more two two quick questions. But one one is that so much of your uh, work has, has made it to film and TV, which is amazing. Does it change your relationship with a film or with with, you, with a book when it becomes a film and TV? I'm I'm just thinking about when I read Tracy Foote Can't Win. It's hard, you know. Reese Witherspoon. That may have been the first time I saw her was an election, and it's hard not to picture Reese Witherspoon when you think about Tracy Flick now. Um, is there a, let, a sense of letting go um, that when when you when you tie your you know your 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 written word to the visual, etc. Yeah, yeah, no, and, and there's just no way. I, I, it's the same for me as as for anybody else. It's like I've seen the movie Election many times, and Reese Witherspoon is now Tracy Flick. Like I can't even remember what it was that I pictured, you know, because. I still don't know, like when I read and there's a character and there's a description and, but, you know, my mind is just producing some vague image, you know, of, of even characters that I, I create. And it just, it is, it's not like I'm watching a movie in my head. Like some people claim that when they read a book, they see a movie in their head. But for me, it's like, it's all about the words on the page and words make your brain fire in a particular way. And it's, you know, something I love. That's why I'm a writer, but words also trigger memories. And once you've seen a movie, they're triggering the memory of the movie that that you've seen. And so Reese Witherspoon was very much on my mind. I can't look at little children and not see, you know, Kate Winslet as as that character. And and um, I mean, <laughs> The Leftovers is a, is a is a different case because my Kevin Garvey is like an older guy who is a mayor of, of a town and. You know, Justin Thoreau, we've made him a, a, a police chief, but he's also Justin Thoreau. He's just this ripped, tattooed guy who just looks so different from my guy that when I read the book, I'm just con conscious of the fact that that's a different character, actually, even though it, it has the same name. There's no way to superimpose Justin Thoreau on on my Kevin Garvey. So that's that's a that's a, a funny case of, of uh, something. And also, if I'm right, it, it, the, the, the second two seasons of The Leftovers was... Uh, beyond the book, right? It was the book sort of was covered in season one, and then this next two were kind of launched by your leftovers. Yeah, that that was uh, you know those were pure sequels in a sense. They were just created you know by Damon Lindelof and me in the writers' room. You know, we had a bunch of great writers there, and we just were you know making up a new thing. And in a way, that was easier for me. 
than season one where I was, you know, trying to protect my book um, and Damon was trying to like, you know, transform it. And and now I see the benefit of that. But at the time I was like a little bit like, whoa, man, <laughs> we got this book here and there's all this stuff. And, you know, Damon's just an amazing uh, writer and, and, you know, we just had to learn how to trust each other. It's like any kind of artistic collaboration, you know, it can be painful, but people can lead you to places you could never get on your own. Yeah. So, okay. One, one last question. And it goes back to legacy of rentals, a legacy. Do you think about your legacy as a writer or you just go to work? You know, the, the more, the longer I live, the more I realize it's just like completely impossible to judge that stuff. I, I, you know, think of writers who, you know, felt so central and inescapable, like somebody like John Updike when I was growing up was just this giant, you know? I mean, his rabbit books mean a ton to me, but like, you know, my kids are are literary and big readers and I don't know that they know him or, or read him, you know? I think he'll come back because he's a major figure, um, you know, but, but when I was growing up, like, you know, writers like Saul Bellow and, and Updike, and Salinger just seemed like huge. And James Baldwin was a little bit of a footnote. But now if you look back at that time, like Baldwin seems like a giant compared to them. like, you know, reputations change with time. People who seemed really important kind of can can fade away. Um, people who were overlooked, like, you know, a Melville or an Emily Dickinson can, you know, 50 years later, like they're probably people we don't even know now who, you know, 50 years from now, people are going to go like, that was the important writer of, of that time. And it would be very embarrassing for us if we were still alive to go like, eh, we completely missed that, you know? Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> I mean, I think that's, 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 I mean, music has that too, you know? I mean, like you think about all the, I mean, what, all the, all these bands that are so quote unquote important that, 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 you know, played half, half full rooms oftentimes, you know, and, um, you know, It'll all, time time flattens it all out. Well, um, I love talking to you. That was super fun. I really appreciate you joining me here. No, it was my, my pleasure. And, and, you know, I just, uh, your music has meant so much to me for so long. It's always a thrill for me to talk to you. Always so nice to hear from someone you admire so much. And what an awesome talk. Really happy Tom Parada was able to join us here. We are getting towards the end of season one, but we've got a few more great guests coming up in the next few weeks. I'm excited to share them with you soon. The reason we're taking a little break between seasons is I'm going on tour with my band, the Uptown Controllers in tow, to celebrate the music from my new record, A Legacy of Rentals, and beyond. We head to Europe and the UK in September, and we'll be in the US in October and November. Check out craigfin.net for dates and tickets. These should be incredible shows that you don't want to miss. And aside from the amazing conversations with upcoming guests, I'll be doing a few tour updates here and there at this space, so keep listening. And make sure to subscribe to That's How I Remember It. Thanks so much for being a part of it. Stay positive.